0: Some time ago, in fact, a few decades ago in many states in a far, far away land, my wife and I were unloading a storage unit. It was in a big complex, and there were, I mean, hundreds upon hundreds of units, and we happened to have our only son at that time, our only child at that time with us. Grant was just a matter of maybe two and a half, three years old. And uh, he was running around, getting in the way. We were sorting through things. And then all of a sudden, there was this unnerving silence from a parent's point of view, you know? I don't hear the noise. I don't see any chaos. Where in the world is my child? And I had just happened to notice that a vehicle had gone by a little while before, give you some context, everything we owned basically other than the clothes on our back were in that unit and we were changing out for seasons and had to sort and get new clothes and put stuff away and we were, anyway, it was a big mess and we lost track of them. And that silence was like so strong, it was crippling I take off running for the front gate, I'm trying to trace down this truck, not knowing if they just kidnapped our son or not, and I don't get there in time, they put in their code, they're able to leave, I'm running up and down other aisles, yelling his name, looking, 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 couldn't find him anywhere, come all the way back to the unit, and I'm out of breath, Natalie's almost in tears, I don't know what to do, and then the silence is broken. You couldn't find me. <laughs> He'd been hiding from us, little rascal. <laughs> Silence sometimes is unbearable, right? You've said something and you're expecting a response, hopefully a good one, and there's just nothing. Paul, I think, kind of felt that way, probably even more so intensely than in our normal conversation. So if you find your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning, uh, if you are using one of the Bibles here provided, it's page 986. And we are going to be looking at verses 17 through chapter 3 and verse 13. Paul hasn't seen these people for some time, and his heart is in his throat. Have they, who are now suffering for the faith... Have they turned from the faith? What has become of the church in Thessalonica? These believers that he's poured his life out to, these believers that he's risked his life for, where are they? What is the state of the church there? No word, no messages, no ability to get back into the city. Paul is completely shut off. If you remember, we said last week, or I said last week, that this was going to be part two of a, of a long passage here. Chapter 2 and 3, Paul is kind of rehearsing for the church his history with them. He begins in chapter 2, verse 1 with, For yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. And we see that word vain used a second time in chapter 3 in verse 5, or verse 6, where he says, my fear i sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain i think that kind of brackets the passage as a whole and in fact you could even say it ends at chapter or verse 13 of chapter 3 And Paul is writing with two goals in mind. He wants to communicate to these believers that his absence isn't rooted in fear. It's not the result of him being talking the game, but not walking the game. In fact, he's been kept from seeing them. But he wants to let them know that he is confident that they did hear the gospel and that they are true believers. His second pastoral concern is whether or not the pressure that they're facing from their community to go back to the worship of idols, to reject this newfangled religion of Christianity, is that pressure, maybe job losses or being snubbed in the common marketplace, maybe losing positions of power and places of influence, maybe it's costing them something and he's worried that that pressure is going to move them away from the faith and call them to go back into the old ways that they had known. So the silence is unbearable. And as we get to our text this morning, what we see in chapter 2 in verses 17 through verse 5 of chapter 3 is Paul expressing this. The silence has been unbearable. I desire to see my people once again. And so, if you follow along, I'm going to read from God's Word. We're just going to stop at verse 5 of chapter 3 for right now. Beginning in verse 17 of chapter 2. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. God, as we look to your word now, we pray for understanding, We pray that your truth would penetrate our hearts, your spirit would guide us, and give us not just an understanding of what it's saying, but give us the will to work according to your pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. So this first idea is this silence is so unbearable that Paul has a longing to see his people again, that he's forced to actually send people that he relies on for his ministry back into Thessalonica because he must be a marked man and he can't go personally. And so he sends Timothy to go and check on these people. You can read more about this in Acts chapter 17 and 18 where Paul actually leaves here and he goes to another town of Berea and then he goes to another place and it's called Athens. And this is where we find him writing, or referring to here in chapter two and three. But a pastor's heart—if you notice this—I want. Or let me start again. A pastor's absence doesn't indicate a love, lack of love. Okay, Paul in his absence is not rooted in a lack of love. Verses seventeen and eighteen of chapter two. The old saying that absent makes the heart grow fonder is not true if there was no fondness in the heart before the absence took place, right? You don't miss someone. Boy, this is, I think we need the little filter on there. Um, You don't miss someone if you don't love someone. So it's only true if love and deep affection were present before the absent took place. And what we see in Paul's life, it did. It was this way. He wants them to know very clearly that his departure was not his choice. He was torn away from them. There was a riot in the city that nearly cost people their lives. Some were even arrested and put in jail. Some had to put up significant sums of money to get out of jail and promise that they would send Paul away and he would not return. Paul's absence did not reflect reflect a lack of love time and time again he tells us in verses 17 and 18 he tried to return but satan hindered him now this is really significant we talked last week about the message and the ministry of paul and his companions in chapter 2 verses 1 through 16 how they labored in their midst and how shepherds Pastors, elders, should work and function within a congregation. And we saw the response of the church, verses 13 through 16, how they responded to the Word. And this, again, flows from that idea. Paul is still laboring his point. There's this connection that occurs between the heart of a pastor and the heart of the people. The heart of elders and the, part of the heart of the congregation. It's rooted in the ministry of the gospel. And as elders labor among the sheep, this bond of love and affection develops. A bond that will allow it to weather storms and hardships of life and ministry. Even when there is an absence, love does not diminish. And read verse 6 of chapter 3. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love... And reported, you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. What that shows us is that this church didn't give up on Paul thinking he had given up on them. They still loved him. They did not doubt his love and concern for them. In fact, Paul uses the word remembrance when he speaks of how comforting it was to hear that you always remember us. This church is praying for Paul. We know that Paul uses that word remembrance all over in his letters to speak of prayers. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 2. I'll show it to you here in this book. You can read through Ephesians. You'll see it there in Philippians, 2 Timothy. And it's, it's all over. But look at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This church got it. Even if Paul's time with them was short, they got it. They understood not only the gospel, but their responsibility to pray for their elders, to pray for their pastors. Their They're not asking that God would fix these men and turn them into the elders that they wanted them to be. Their prayers were rooted in a deep love and a desire to see them again. So let me just say this, South Canyon, blessed is the church that prays for its elders in love and with the desire to hear God's word from them. Second, we see in verses 19 through 20 that Paul's love and affection for his spiritual children in the faith had not changed. The Thessalonians are, what Paul says, our hope and joy with a crown of boasting at the public manifestation of Christ because they are the fruit of his ministry as an apostle of Christ. Paul says, I, I can't love you any more than I already do. You are life to me in a real sense. Now this isn't idolatry. This isn't Paul unhealthily viewing the church as a mirror to reflect whether or not he's worthy of something or he's measuring numbers and that is where his self-worth is rooted. But he's saying in a real way, I understand something here. That you, you who have responded to the message that I shared with you about Christ, not my message, the message I received from God, you are trophies of Christ crucified. Paul gets it that in this, in this world, his greatest joy is to see that his ministry is bearing fruit, that there are people who are coming to faith through his teaching. And it reminds us yet once again, what is the point of church work, laboring among sheep? It is the people matter. People matter. They are the evidence of faithful ministry. Even more, they are loved by God, created in His image. So every elder, I'm, again, I'm leaning this way because the text is leading us this way. Every elder ought to be concerned about the people. And Paul's saying, my love and affection hasn't changed for you. You are our hope, our, our joy, our crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus Now, we look at verses 1 through 5, and we see that Paul sent Timothy with a threefold mission. Verses 1 and 2, Timothy was simply sent to establish and exhort them in the faith. And the verb establish refers to the building up of new converts. So this departure, Paul wasn't able to labor among the Thessalonians like he did at at, uh, Ephesus for years. His time there was short. So these people needed, they had truth and they were embracing it, but they needed more truth. They needed to be strengthened in their faith. And Timothy was also not just to build them up in the faith, but to exhort or to encourage them. The word there is paraclete, the word that's often used with the Holy Spirit as the comforter. I mean, this is practical shepherding 101. Get in the hearts and lives of people. Spend time with them. Root them in God's Word. Comfort and cheer them. But you look at verses 3-4, through Timothy also had a second mission. And it was to discover whether or not these Christians had moved away from the Gospel. Now it's interesting here, as we read this verse, Paul says this. um, I'm trying to find verse 3. There is. That no one be moved by these afflictions. That word moved... This is really weird, okay? Really weird. That word came about as the result, it originally started with dogs wagging their tail. Anybody have a dog? I'm blessed with two. Sometimes it's a blessing, sometimes it's not. But we have two dogs, and what's interesting to me is this word that's used here was used at first of dogs wagging their tail and then you know when a dog is wagging their tail really I mean I know there's some real dog people out there they really don't love you like you think they do they are trying to sweeten you up to give them a treat they are trying to talk you into going for a walk they are trying to get you to think that you are the greatest person in the world so you will throw that ball one more time and that's how the word eventually got to be used, as someone who would flatter, to fawn upon, and therefore to deceive, to be moved away from the faith. Paul was worried that these Thessalonians and what they were suffering might lead them from Christ. And one of the best ways to prepare people for tribulation is to talk about it before it comes. It is the duty and responsibility of pastors to teach that Christians will by necessity suffer for Jesus. If this is a new truth to you, then I'm I'm sorry to break down any stereotype, stereotype or a false image that you might have of Christianity, but your best life is not now. It won't be. It won't be. It can't be. We will suffer as our Savior has suffered. And we need to... Be prepared for that so that we know how to respond when suffering. I mean, kids in school practice fire drills, right? We practice tornado drills, and there's, there's a process that we do. And military, you go through the same routine over and over and over again so that when the urgency, when the emergency hits, there is no second-guessing, it's instinct, And so Paul says, guys, you remember this. You know that we were destined for this in verse 3. I told you about this when I was with you that you would be persecuted, persecuted, verse 4. And he says in verse 4, you know this to be true yourselves. You are experiencing it. Jesus plainly taught it. So Paul took his time to teach it in his initial visit there. The sad reality is that Christians are destined for affliction. People who oppose the gospel oppose those who bring the gospel. And, as we saw in verse 18 of chapter 2, Satan hinders gospel work. And as we see again here in verse 5, he uses the word tempter. Which goes back to Genesis chapter 3, right? The perfect world that God had made, and in comes this serpent. Satan disguised as a serpent and he tempts Eve to look upon the fruit and see that it was good for the eating and she does. And she disobeys God and then her husband who is there with her, the silent partner in this sin, he takes it and he eats it and then thus all of this, all of this sin and suffering that we're experiencing today is the result of that one man's choice. Paul was eager that these people would understand that suffering is a part of the gospel ministry and it is the result of living in a sin-cursed world. And I have no doubt that there are many here this morning who are suffering. And brethren, please hear me. Don't let your circumstances, your pain, your loss, The betrayal that you've experienced, don't let it move you from your faith. God is with you, even as you suffer, and He is not indifferent to your trial. He loves you. And praise the Lord that you have His Word, and we have His Spirit, and He has gifted us with brothers and sisters to lean on. We are to bear one another's burdens, we are to soldier on side by side. Not indifferent to each other's struggles, but caring for one another tenderly. The third reason Paul sent Timothy was to know how these believers are turning out. How were they holding up under the strain? Verse 5. Paul wondered if the tempter had led them away and that the gospel efforts that he and his team had been involved with had turned to naught. And he's not ignorant of Satan's devices. This is the second time he has mentioned Satan, once by name in verse 18 of chapter 2, and then here as the tempter. We live in a day, however, where Christians often use language of spiritual warfare. You know, there's the tearing down of strongholds, there's spiritual oppression, or there's the binding of Satan in Jesus' name. So let me briefly just address this, briefly, and I promise and this is so important. I want you to hear this, please. Satan's hindering of the gospel will not prevent the gospel work from spreading and producing gospel results. It can't happen. Greater is he that is in you that is in, than he that is in the world. This church was located in a very big city filled with temples to every known god, all sorts of magic, witchcraft, and immorality that accompanies idol worship. Yet when the light of the gospel came into this dark place, people were able to see the difference. And God planted his flag in this dark city as people heard and believed the gospel of Jesus. Satan and all those who hate and oppose the gospel will not succeed in bringing an end to God's work in this world. I think I've heard so many times from Christians who are bemoaning the fact that they believe our best days are behind us and we are destined for great sorrow. That may be true, because we just saw it in the text, right? We are going to suffer. But don't let the circumstances of our country... Don't let the political environment distort the spiritual truth, the real truth. God's got this. He's going to win. We've already seen in this short time in 1 Thessalonians that God does not lose. He's not dead. He's building a kingdom that will endure, and no one and nothing can stop him. Satan might have tempted these people. They may have faced pressure by real living people to turn from the faith. But when Paul gets the word back from Timothy, he finds out they have stood the test. They are still growing. They are still loving one another. They are still serving Christ. They're still gathering as a church. They are still publicly testifying to God's work in them. And they are inviting and calling people to real repentance and faith. You tell me, Satan's won? Not, we're here today, South Canyon, because God wins. Our presence in this room, listening to someone open the Scriptures and read and teach us from it, is because God is greater. And yet we need to be careful to not step a little bit past this. Here's the second thing I want to share with you about my understanding of what Paul's doing here and how he's describing Satan. Satan cannot hinder the gospel work. But, here's a warning, we must be careful to not overstate Satan as the only explanation for evil and human failure. If you're old enough, you might remember this guy. His name was Chip Wilson. I heard a little bit. Somebody here is. I'm not going to say who. But he had this little shtick that he would do where he would say the devil made me do it. Okay? And here's the here's the here's what I've seen pastorally speaking. Satan became can become a scapegoat for those who fail to deal with the sin in their own heart. You know, we this I'm being oppressed, I'm being attacked. Well, you know what? You're you're placing yourself in front of a computer screen where you're looking at pornography and you want to say that's the devil's fault? You're making choices. I'm going back to the casino and I'm throwing more money away, robbing my family of food. And that's the devil's fault? I mean, yes, I understand that our brains get rewired in a certain way that we then lose a little bit of self-control and restraint, but that has come after years and years of abuse. We often neglect our own responsibility for our actions and we blame others for our sinful responses. But still the truth is that sin is within us. So let me ask you, are you prone to anger, to ungodly communication? Do you believe your sinful actions are justified because if it was wrong, why would I want it so badly? Let me share the teaching of Scripture and I have no doubt it's the same truth Paul shared and his companion shared with the Thessalonians. It's a truth that enabled these people to shift their affections and their worship and their faith and their belief and their confidence from idol worship and sexual immorality and greed and lying and hatred and bitterness to allow them to live lives pleasing to God where they loved one another in spite of their differences where they shared the gospel and suffered for it at the hands of those who rejected it. In other words, here's a truth that will indeed set you free. You ready for it? It's simple. Jesus of Nazareth, that historical figure that you may have heard about, is the Savior that God sent into the world to deal with sin. And God sent Jesus to preach that God's kingdom was soon to enter the earth. And we need to prepare for it by either repenting so that we will be welcomed into the kingdom, turning from our sins, or if we oppose it, we will find ourselves condemned by God. And the truth is that the Spirit of God must bring this understanding, this enlightenment, this idea of repentance and faith. And yet the good news is this that Jesus' righteousness is sufficient to remove all our guilt and shame. And He did this by taking it upon Himself on the cross, from dying in our place and rising from the grave, just as we sung this morning to prove that He has the favor of God upon Him and the power in Himself to grant life to all who trust in Him. Friend, it is our prayer this morning as a church We're gathering together to celebrate the God who's redeemed us, but we're also aware that we are inviting people to come and join us. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, it's our prayer that you would experience that saving, freeing, transforming power of the gospel. That in a very real way, you would be born again. And if that is something that God is stirring in your heart, see myself, Tanner or Joel, any of the elders here, talk to the person who invited you. We'd be happy to talk with you after the service. Now, as we turn to verses 6 through 13, we see Paul then expands that Timothy has come to us from you. He's brought us this good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction... We have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. We see in this section, second movement of Paul that good news Breathe life into our hearts. Verses six through thirteen is Paul saying, I've heard back from Timothy. And what's interesting here is he uses the word in verse six that Timothy has brought us the good news. That's the Evangelia. The, the same word for the gospel, it's the only time in the entire New Testament that it's used, not referring to the sharing of the gospel. But it's Paul saying, You I've life has been breathed into me by hearing this report about you guys. I mean, just think about this. This is a really powerful image of how connected this apostle and his companions were with this church. Paul's affection for these Christians is evident, but it increased even more as he learned about their adversities and that they persevered without wavering in their faith. This church is growing in godliness, and it breathed life into the heart of the apostle. I think there's just some really practical things that we can learn from verses 6 through 10. A pastor's faith, an elder's faith, is strengthened upon learning that God has preserving the faith of the members of the body. So we all are suffering, right? In some form or another, we are, we are decaying, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, day by day. Our natural man is wasting away. So I'm not necessarily just talking about the aches and pains of you know maybe hiking eight miles yesterday with no preparation and being on the top of Blackout Peak in a snowstorm, I'm not talking about that. I've heard that's on Facebook somewhere. If you want to check that out, I'm not talking about just physical aches and pains. But if we are not sharing with one another how God is growing us, then we are we are feeding into the myth that God is not at work in this world. We're ignorant of what God is doing in the lives of people around us. That's why when we come together as a church and we share testimonies and Sunday nights, we gather to pray evangelistically, discipling. We pray for ministries and gospel works around the city and around the world. We are being stirred up to see and get reports from ministries that we support and ministries we support. And we hear how people are sharing the gospel with someone and pray for this meeting. We are going to meet today, and we're going to begin a study reading through the gospel of Mark together. That shows one another that God is, in fact, working in this world. And you know what? As a a pastor for many, many years now, the biggest blessing in my life isn't to hear, hey, that was a great sermon, but here's how God is working in me. Here's what God is teaching me through His Word. You know, I was just reading in Romans chapter 3, and I was just really challenged by what this... And and I I had to go and dig into it. Next thing I know, I spent two hours, and I I was only planning on being there for about 15 minutes. I'm just soaking in the Word and loving it and eating it up. Well, this this is what happens to Paul. He is so comforted by this good report that he uses the word good news. Verse 6, but look at verse 7. It also brought great comfort. These pieces of information almost overwhelmed the disciple he could, or the apostle. He couldn't contain himself. He breaks out, Brothers, this is so amazing in all our distress and persecution. We were encouraged about you because of your faith, even though the apostle and his companions are still suffering in Athens are still being opposed and hated and mocked and maligned. They are somehow lifted out of their suffering by hearing of God's work in the lives of other believers. Shouldn't that be an enough occasion for us to be bold in sharing not only the gospel, but how our faith is being lived out day by day? I mean, this church needs it. Every church needs it. We need to hear what God's doing in our lives. We need to pray for one another, and we need to share What God is teaching us. Verse 8 says this report gave life to Paul. He can take a breath again. There's this load that's been lifted off of him. A new lease on life. And it's because these people are standing firm in the faith. And then it just leads Paul to this expression of prayer and thanksgiving. Verse 9, how can we thank God enough for what He has done in you? The joy that we have because of you. I mean, this is just beaming pride from a spiritual father over his children. And it increased Paul's desire to see them again and to continue equipping them in the faith. Verse 10. So, church, let me just say this once again. Beloved, your elders have no greater joy than to hear you are walking in the truth. It's true. Ask Royce, ask Jeremy, at Tyler, Kaelin, Tanner, Joel, myself, on and on, Mark. Former, former elders that are in this congregation, I know a couple of you have been in that position, and I know there's some that I may not be aware of. There is no greater joy for a shepherd to hear that his children, his spiritual people are walking in the faith. So how are you doing in your pursuit of holiness, your practice of godliness, your resistance against the temptation of your flesh? Are you walking in the Spirit? Are you sharing the good news? Are you doing good for others? Are you praying for your elders? Are you sharing with them what God is teaching you? As we look at verses 11-13, through 13, we see that here's the heart of a pastor in Paul's prayer. He, a prayer asking God to reunite, reunite them in verse 11. And, and I want you to see this. Don't miss the fact that Paul puts the Father, God and the Father himself and our Lord Jesus in the same sentence peers. On the same level, he did this back in chapter 1 and verse 1. So this is a real Christological Christological teaching here. That Jesus isn't, you know, of the Father in the sense of, uh, like the Jehovah Witness teaches, that He's a created being. Jesus is of the same essence as the Father. And Paul understands that. And again, we see in verse 11 that Paul is comforted by the fact that what Satan attempted to destroy, God has preserved and in fact strengthened. And we know from Acts chapter 19 that Paul's prayers were eventually answered. He was able to return to Macedonia some five years later on his third missionary trip and spend two different occasions with this congregation. He's, a, he's praying that God would bring them together, and God answered that prayer. Looking at verse 12, Paul is praying and asking God to keep growing this church's love for one another. You notice the double emphasis there? May the Lord Jesus Christ make your love increase and abound, here's the first one, for each other in the church and for everyone else. Who might that be? Who's the everyone else? It's all people. The people that God has put in your life that may be stumbling blocks. They may be opponents. They may be just indifferent. God wants you to interact with these people and demonstrate to them a love that stems from your love of God. Paul not only wants this to take place, but he wants to see their love only increase and increase so much so that it begins overflowing and spilling out into every area of their lives. I mean, a church that has this kind of identity is a church we all want to be a part of, and it's a church we can be. I mean, that's the good news, right? That's the great news, we can be a part of a church that bears each other's burdens, that encourages and supports one another in the faith, shares what God is doing in each other's lives, both the bad and the good, the, the confrontation of sin that he's, he's pulling out and dragging the sin into the light to show us what we need to address, but also the comfort that he's teaching us and he's shepherding us and he's gentle. But Paul also says in verse 13, as he prays that God would establish them blameless in holiness until Christ returns. We sang about this, this, this assembly, God, Jesus returning from heaven with all their saints. And I think that there is no greater stimulation to holiness than to have a vision of the future visible return of Jesus with his saints. Be ready. We don't know the day or the hour, but he is coming. Praise God. Some of us have the real likelihood of seeing it and being alive when He returns. To have your faith be made sight just like that in an instant. And Jesus will be visibly known and seen. And Paul is saying, in order that we may be blameless and holy, then in that moment... I'm praying that right now we would be inwardly strengthened, that we would be sanctified in this present, ongoing, continual process until perfection arrives with Jesus. It's not here on this earth. It comes with Jesus. But we need to prepare now for that day. And we've worked our way through this lengthy passage over the last two Sundays. We see that Paul led with the gospel and he closes with the gospel. He reminds this church of the character and the content of the gospel ministry in Thessalonica, and he rejoices over the positive results of these believers to believe this, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. And today we discovered that Paul's delayed absence wasn't born out of fear or lack of love for this group. Rather, he was prevented from coming. But his love and his concern for these people prompted a plan B, and he sent Timothy to strengthen the church and continue teaching them to love the Lord and follow Him. And what we learned is that that God alone has the power to change people and no one and nothing can stop Him. And what is the means by which God changes people? It is the proclamation of His Word. In particular, about who Jesus is and then how we are to order our lives as followers of Jesus. And here's the truth. Every healthy church is, that is com, will be committed to the faithful and careful preaching of God's Word in the power of God's Spirit for the glory of Christ and for the good of people. We also observe in the example of Paul and his companions that the church is to be committed to each other in love and care for one another. You remember back from last week, chapter 2, Paul uses the image in verse 11 and then again in verse 7 of parents who are loving and nurturing, who are teaching and exhorting. How he spoke of his burden to see these Christians grow more Christ-like. How he yearned to be with them. How he labored in prayer for them. How concerned he was that affliction or temptation would lead them from the faith. Is there any doubt in your mind that he loved these people? His heart is plain to see. So church, I pray that what you will see in the heart of your elders, your pastors, is the same heart that Paul had a longing to see you grow in faith. A denial of self, personal cost, of pouring one's life out for the good of this church and the glory of its Savior. I hope that you will also receive your pastors as they come to you and talk with you in a humble way and understand that what we are doing is for your good. So don't resist godly shepherding. Not knowing how this church was doing kept Paul awake. It kept him in prayer. It cost him greatly. It, it made him send Timothy back. This is the language of love. It's the language of family. This is what pastoral love should look like. So when you see this South Canyon, rejoice and praise God. Where you don't pray that the love of Christ would abound more and more. And so that it would not just fill us in this room. But it would spill out into our neighborhoods, into our schools, into the places that we work. When the lost hear the gospel and they see it lived out in such practical and holy and godly ways, it is a huge draw for them to Christ. We're to be holy because God is holy. We're also to be loving because God is love. And today we've had the joy of practicing both ordinances. We've seen two young men be baptized, and we've listened to the Word as it's been read, as it's been prayed, sung, and proclaimed, and now we are going to share the Lord's table together. This is a great day to be here and to see the Word in practice. And so now as the elders come, I'm going to ask you, church, let's take a moment to respond to the Word. Hearing what we have heard this morning, seeing what we have seen already this morning, how should we then order our lives? How then should we live in this day, in this time? Let's take a moment to reflect and respond to God as He is prompting us and prepare ourselves to receive the bread and the cup.